headed real quickly now toward 2015. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 66. I'm picking up where I left off yesterday. Well, this isn't exactly it in Isaiah 66, but it can tie together very well. Uh, as you will recall, uh, about how it would be to be a spirit and whether it's worth all that we go through in order to achieve that. And as much as we can imagine at least what it would be like But here in Isaiah 66, uh, God is talking how the heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. I quoted a verse similar to that yesterday. Let's go down to verse 5. Hear the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at his word. So this addresses some people who are aware of God's word, who already have a great respect for it, who accept it, if you will, and he says that they are to hear, though they already know. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, says he, said, said, let the eternal be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. So this is a message to the first fruits, a prophetic message that those who have hated us, who have turned aside from us, who ridicule us or put us down in any way for the things we believe and what we're trying to do, will be ashamed, but it will be to our joy when Christ returns. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. And then he addresses the church, as he does in many places. Most recently we went there in Micah 4. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Now we have been in a certain amount of pain and travail, have we not? And he tells us to travail and be in pain there in Micah and some other scriptures where it uses this very same analogy. But the great trauma and pain that this world is preparing to go into is going to be so much greater than the pain and the travail that we have experienced so far And we are going to be delivered from much of that if we tremble at his word. And it will seem like the pain is very short, and this happens very quickly when it begins to happen. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children." Shall I bring to the birth, and not cause to bring forth, says the Eternal? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says your God? Is he the kind of God who would impregnate us with his Spirit, that we be conceived of the Spirit to later be born into the kingdom of God, and bring us through all this, through 
at least on a physical analogy, nine months of growth and hardship and difficulty both on the mother and on perhaps the child to some degree. And then not let it happen? Would God be that way? No. There have been times in the past when humans have actually tied women's legs together to keep them from having the child when it was due until they were ready and prepared for it to happen. I've read accounts of them literally doing that. Now you talk about torture. God's not that way. For as soon as I am travailed, she brought forth her children. Now, the time that we have spent may seem long in some respects, but once it's done, it will seem very short. There's another scripture that uses this analogy that talks about the pain and the sorrow and then how it is all forgotten so quickly once a man-child is born into the world. The, the, uh, the pain and all turns to tears of joy when that occurs. And it's all forgotten very, very quickly. But God says, I'm not going to bring you to this point and keep you there forever. This is going to happen very quickly. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her. And we are at the climax of the Feast of Tabernacles and Great White Throne Judgment Day, which pictures a time when these things will actually have occurred and the birth will be over and peace will be beginning to come all over the earth. So it is a time to rejoice, to think good, pleasant thoughts. Uh, There's plenty of time to frustrate with our deficiencies and problems and difficulties. But joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And especially at times like this, it's time to focus on joy and happiness and the good things that God promises. Yes, we reflect a great deal, and I push and pull and prod to help us to move forward and keep moving and not quit. And yet, on the other hand, you've got to have the carrot out front, too. Uh, You may need some prodding and pushing from behind, but you also need goals and vision ahead that pull you forward, that give you hope and excitement about what the future holds. And that's what these scriptures are here to do. So if you love Jerusalem, the church, you love the Jerusalem of the promised land that will be rebuilt very shortly, rejoice that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. A child goes through a fairly traumatic circumstance being born, the child itself, And it lets you know about it as soon as it comes into the world, cries out, and is in discomfort in many respects, got the cold air hitting it for the first time, and having to actually breathe through its lungs, and finding out that they're there, and yowling and wailing about it. 
But I'll tell you what, as soon as you slap him on mommy's tummy and put something warm and soft in his mouth, he shuts right up. So God uses this analogy to say that if we go through this and it comes to pass, then God is going to give us the breasts of consolation and milk out and be delighted. There's very little in a little baby's world that can't be fixed by poking a nipple in his mouth and letting it suckle at his mother's breast. That solves most problems very quickly. So God uses that analogy. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Not a little peace, but like a river flowing with peace. There's a river up in Canada named the Peace River. Huge river. Uh, Makes most of ours look like streams or creeks by comparison. Not all of them like the Mississippi and the Columbia, but most of our rivers. The whole river is named the Peace River. Runs between beautiful mountains and hills and forested area. Just a beautiful thing to see. So he says it will run like that. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck, you shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. A beautiful analogy about all the things a mother can do to comfort her child, dandle it on her knees, burp it over her shoulder, uh, all the things that we know to do to make that child's life peaceful, happy, comfortable, loved, and secure. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Eternal shall be known toward his, servant, toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. So it will turn around as he puts down his enemies, He will in turn show his incredible love for those who have trembled at his word. For by fire and by his sword will the eternal plead with all flesh, and the slain of the eternal shall be many. Now let's go back to Revelation 21, which is more specifically where I was headed yesterday. But we have a little bit of insight from there about how quickly God is going to turn things around and give us the comfort that we so deeply desire. Now this is more specifically the day picturing, as we heard somewhat this morning, the resurrection of all those peoples from Adam until Christ returns who have never had opportunity at uh, understanding God's way and had opportunity at salvation. Whatever religions they were, they did not understand the truth. And without the truth, you are not a candidate for the kingdom of God. So these will all have their chance during this time, and I'll get to it, but I want to finish up some thoughts about yesterday, uh, about those who are spirit at the beginning of the millennium, as opposed to those who will still be human. Now much of this applies really to both, but it applies in a much greater measure to those who will be changed, glorified, and become spirit and God at the first resurrection. And he picks that story up in chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. I'm not going to go through all the scriptures I did in that series on how exclusive is the church to show that this is at the beginning of the millennium, that the, the way of the world, the way of Satan, will be passed away. Uh, and when it says no more sea, it doesn't mean no more water, but Ezekiel explains very clearly that that means all the waters will become fresh. The seas will not be salty anymore. They'll become fresh. That's what healing the waters does. Let's focus more on the conditions, because that's what we're discussing here. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So though we know there are 144,000 specific individuals who are the first fruits and are the first resurrection, he uses the metaphor of the city itself to describe the bride. Now, of course, that's consistent with what we've been seeing throughout the prophecies, where Jerusalem and Zion are code words for the church or for the first fruits or the 144,000. So he maintains that here. The city and the bride are very similar, and you'll see that the numbers down here fit. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So not only is God going to begin to give us spiritual answers and comfort and peace, but he's going to come and dwell with us, visibly so, and we will be able to see him as he is because we will be like him, as we saw in 1 John yesterday. But notice verse 4. Up to this point, I've described mostly from the scriptures we went through yesterday, the conditions and what it would be like to be a spirit, what appearance and form and power and light and all those things that we will be. But now, in this particular place, we begin to deal with the emotional needs and issues. For instance, on this earth today, it does not matter how beautiful or how handsome or how intelligent we might be, we still are susceptible to our nature, and we are susceptible to depression, and hurt, and anger, to drugs, legal and illegal, uh, alcohol used wrongly, sex used wrongly, anything that humans do can be turned around and create all kinds of trauma for us because misuse creates disharmony, disunity, frustration, uh, sadness, anger, fear, insecurity, and all those things that human beings are. And it doesn't matter. You can be in the upper echelon of this society or culture today and it doesn't prevent suicides. Wealth doesn't. A lot of wealthy people do themselves in. Beautiful people, 
Sometimes you see pictures of, of actors or actresses or so on who overdose or kill themselves or hang themselves. And they had all the wealth they could possibly need. They had absolute beauty physically. And yet, life was too much because of emotional issues. Things that go on in the mind and the feelings of people that it doesn't matter what you have in any form or fashion, but what's going on inside the head. So he deals with those things right here in verse 4. I'll come, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now this is speaking of those who are spirit, the bride. It's not speaking of everybody in the millennium. They will still be human, and to some degree they will still have tears and other difficulties because they're not made immortal in spirit yet. Now they won't have the traumas that people on this earth today have because Satan will be gone and human nature will be much better in check than it is today. But he's talking about the bride here specifically in the context. And she, we, if we're there, will never cry another tear. Now that means that a lot of things will have to change, right? What can make us cry today? Many, many different circumstances can bring tears to our eyes. I mean bad tears. I don't mean tears of joy, but of grief, of frustration, of anger, of bitterness, of loss, loss of loved ones, sicknesses and illnesses, uh, our emotions being abused with offenses of all different kinds that people can perpetrate upon us, losses of jobs, losses, you know, divorces, child custody that goes against you. You know, there, there's so many, many things today that can bring you tears. So, it isn't just that the salt water is wiped away. It means that the things that would create tears go away. All insecurities, all frustrations, all those things. And there shall be no more death. Now, during the millennium, death will occur. Isaiah 65 talks about how uh, the sinner and the babe alike will die a hundred years of age. So, there will still be death on the physical realm. But not with us. Those who are there will never see death, nor will they see death anywhere within our family of God. Neither sorrow. Nothing to be sorrowful about. Look back on your life, and you will find many times that you were sorrowful. Many times you felt hurt, dejected, discouraged, and it created sorrow. It wasn't always just yours. Christ was a man of sorrows when he was on the earth himself. He didn't sit around feeling sorry for himself, but he saw an awful lot of hurt and pain and misery in others, and it made him sorrowful. 
But we will be in such a condition at that point that those issues won't be our nature anymore. That's the thing we have to grasp, is that those fruits of the Spirit there in Galatians will then be an automatic reaction. Love, joy, peace, patience, all those things will be automatic. They'll just be the way you are. Today, we can get depressed and feel lonely or frustrated so very, very easily. All our goals, our wants, not being met. But we won't be that way anymore. It just wouldn't occur. Because every part of your mind and your emotions will be in uplift mode, not downward as they are today with human nature. And that will prevent any type of sorrow, nor crying, tears and crying both. Neither shall there be any more pain. No pain. That's a benefit of being spirit. A lot of you right now in this very room hurt physically right now. Your knees hurt, your shoulders hurt, your fingers hurt, your toes hurt, your nose hurts. I don't know what all it is. But I hear enough of it around here that I know a lot of people right here are in pain almost every moment, if not every moment, of their lives one way or another. Even young people suffer from various debilities and diseases and malfunctions in their bodies that cause pain and suffering and sorrow and hurt. Can you imagine living a life with zilch, no pain whatsoever? It's just, it's mind-boggling if you consider that God can accomplish that, and he says he will. So all of our emotional needs will be met. There will be no reason for any discouragement or doubt or fear or insecurity. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So that will be a renewing, will it not? To have your mind and your emotions in a moment in the twinkling of an eye changed so that they operate differently than they have in the past. It'll be a whole new world then. A whole new world. That doesn't mean he's going to make every molecule on the earth uh, burn up and be changed. We've shown that and proved that before. But it does say there will be a renewal, and he shows in part a little later on how that will occur. He said to me, it is done. It's as good as finished. If I say it, if I tell you that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. Don't doubt it. Don't worry about it. Do what you need to do to get there, to be part of the bride, and these things will be taken care of. I don't know what better carrot could be put before our eyes than this. No more need for all those drugs they're giving our children and our middle-aged people and our old people to solve pain. 
and to solve difficulties and to try to mask symptoms and all this that our society is now hooked on. It'll just all go away. There will be no drug companies. There'll be no pharmaceuticals at all. There'll be no chemical plants turning out poison to put on our foods. We'll be spirit. We won't have to eat, but we can. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You can eat when you want to, how you want to. Of course, there won't be any white flour. There won't be any soda pop and candy. There won't be 99.999% of what is in a grocery store today. It simply will not exist. Now Christ said he wouldn't drink wine after that Passover service with his apostles until he drank it new in the kingdom. And there is a scripture in Deuteronomy that says that wine cheers the heart of God and man. So God can enjoy alcohol. Christ is not right now because he's waiting to drink it with us at the wedding supper on the sea of glass before his father's throne. And then he'll, I don't know about toasts, whether those are actually pagan or not, but there will be some, some ceremony there, I am sure, whereby we all have a nice drink together, because that's the way God is. So he eats. Now we can eat and we'll never get indigestion. We can eat and never have digestive problems at all. We can eat and not get fat. We can eat and not be too skinny. We can eat and not get sick because it's junk we're throwing down in our bodies. We can eat because we enjoy it and enjoy the fellowship of doing it together. And there will be no side effects in any way. God's promises don't come with side effects. Have you watched any drug commercials on the TV? They tell you it'll it'll do this for you. Probably one thing it's going to do for you. And then they go on for the next 58 seconds telling you all the stuff bad that it's going to do to you possibly. And when I get to the bottom of that list, I say, I don't want any of that for any reason. So whatever man does has side effects, one way or another. What God does has no deleterious effects whatsoever. Always good. He's the beginning and the end. It's done. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. You won't need to be praying for needs and wants and desires and help and healing and all those things. You just won't have those problems. And you can have freely of the waters of life. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. And we went through in Revelation 2 and 3 yesterday and showed some of the new things that he will give us, the gifts and various things that being a spirit will allow the new name, the stone, singing a new song, a pure language, he says in one place. So many things that will be an upgrade from what we got today by far, but will inherit all things. The entire universe will be our inheritance. Mom and Papa might leave you a little bit now and then, 
But God's going to give us everything. That's, that's an awful lot to inherit. You know, even in the American dream, it's maybe a house and a subdivision with a picket fence or whatever, or maybe more, more modernly a McMansion. And pretty soon the American dream would just be to have a piece of cardboard over their head. Real soon. God promises us the entire earth and the, all the universe around. Wow. Uh, let's see. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then it talks about a category of people that won't be there, and we'll skip over that because I'm trying to stay very positive here about the kingdom of God. Let's not talk about those that won't be there. Let's talk about the ones that are. That's the focus today. Verse 9, And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven veils full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So one of the angels that had been assigned to pour out the seven last plagues immediately turns and in this vision says, John, now I want to show you the bride's wife. Because the new heavens and the new earth are coming down when Christ returns to begin to set up the millennium. He's going to come first and we'll meet him in the air and go to his father's throne during the seven last plagues and have our honeymoon of one year with our bridegroom and then come back to take over and rule the world. All the saints with him, it says there uh, in another chapter here in, in the Revelation as well as, I think, in Jude. So he says... Seven last plagues are done. Finish that job. Now I've got another job. I've got something to show you. Come here. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So she'll be coming down. Jude says, will ever be with the Lord. Will never leave his side again. Always be with him wherever he goes. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I would assume he would have been standing there, either on what they call the West Temple or the mighty throne of God in Zion, or perhaps up on uh, Mount Hermon called Cedar Mountain, or maybe on Brian Head. Who knows? This is the area, and those are the mountains we're dealing with. So let's get the picture. He's standing near here. In seeing that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, and her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We've probably all, at one time or another, admired a beautiful gemstone, and how clear and beautiful and, and uh, the hues and the light going through it just make it sparkle and shine. That's us. That's us. And had a great wall, and high, and had twelve gates. At the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, Revelation 7 and 14 describe the bride, the 144,000, as the first fruits, And their names will be written in twelve sections. 12,000 per tribe. 12 times 12 
being or 12 times 12,000, 144,000. There will be an apostle, uh, one of the originals, as the leader of each of those tribes, and each will contain a total of 12,000 spirit beings. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now this is describing the bride and the city that she lives in, combined together in a metaphor. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square... Uh, not a rectangle, four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. That's, if we have the right measurement uh, among the scholars, that works out to about 1,377 and a quarter miles square. Nearly 1,400 square miles. That's pretty good sized. Now God says in, is it Isaiah 5, somewhere back there, that uh, he doesn't like cities and he doesn't like us to build house to house and uh, field to field so that a man has no space. You think of 144,000, well that's quite a few. But on the other hand, you've got... uh, how did I, I figured that out one time. How much space there was for each person or each being. And that's quite a bit. If you have a square mile on this earth today, that's pretty good size. 640 acres. And I think this worked out much, much larger than that. Of course, you've got to make room for some angels and the 24 elders and that kind of thing. But still in all, <coughs> you won't be crowded. Won't be crowded at all. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, 216, 216 feet. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Gold so pure, you can see through it, and yet it has that gold texture. Absolutely pure gold. The city, the whole thing, pure gold. The foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz. Uh, That's my Bible that prints gone. Chrysoprasus or something like that. And amethyst. So all this gold with these gemstones set in it perfect gemstones picking up all that light from the gold and this is beyond my capacity to even begin to imagine the beauty of that we ooh and ah over a little diamond and a, a small diamond and a ring and this is nearly 1400 miles cubed the twelve gates were twelve pearls every several gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. 
I don't know how big the gates are, but 12 gates, three on each side, would probably be monstrous gates to be anything at all in proportion with the building. And each gate is a pearl. A pearl. I've seen some pretty nice pearls, but that's about the extent of it, you know. And imagine the oyster. Whew. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So Ezekiel's temple, probably the temple that we need to build, will not be the temple of this city. It's not near big enough. It isn't near fine enough, but as a physical manifestation or a type of the temple to come, it will be built and used for a short while before this one comes down from God out of heaven. Now notice it won't be like the tabernacle in the wilderness where the high priest himself could only go in once a year. Now, we, as part of the God family, will live there with the Father and the Son and have total access at all times. It will be our home. Please, put aside your pitiful American dream. <laughs> Look at this McMansion. 1,400 square miles, every direction including up. All gold, all gemstones. The Father and the Son living there. And the light from those two, and from us, because we'll shine as the brightness of the firmament forever, Daniel 12.3 tells us. The combined light of all of us together are going to think, make that thing sparkle and shine like you can't imagine with that pure gold and all those gemstones. This is the mansion that Christ described to his disciples that he would go and make for them. And here it's described. He didn't describe it to them at that time, I don't think. He just says, in my Father's house there are many. And we've said that maybe. Uh, positions or positions of authority, but it can be both, can't it? Because we're going to be put in here as kings and priests, so the positions of responsibility and authority are there as kings and priests and teachers for the whole world, and then the living conditions beyond imagination, just beyond any architecture's dream. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations or peoples of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Who will be saved at that point? The 144,000. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. So when it says in Zechariah 14, they'll come up to keep the feast at Jerusalem, they're going to bring their honor and their praise for God up to this fabulous city to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. 
The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise, no way, no how, enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The first fruits, the 144,000, the bride, are the ones who live there, dwell there, have free access, and are with the Father and the Son forevermore. The people of the earth will still have problems, will still be human. They can come up to Jerusalem, but they can't come in that great city, at least not at that point. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. I've been to some very beautiful lakes, rivers, streams, here and there. I remember some up in central and northern Florida that it was so clear you could look down through 30, 40 feet of water and see a fish just as plain as if it was right in front of your face. There are waters that clear on earth today, here and there. There aren't too many of them, but they're there. But this one will be as clear as crystal. Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, was there a tree of life which bore uh, twelve manners of fruit and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there'll be no more curses. No more curses. You and I would never under, come under a curse again for disobedience, for a wrong attitude, or whatever, because we won't have any. You just never get in a bad attitude that curses you. You know, frustration, selfishness, and boredom today are their own curse, really. God doesn't have to pronounce one. But the misery and frustration and depression you get from having your mind on yourself and woe is me, poor little me, or whatever, uh, is built in. But with the nature changed, you just simply won't have that. No more curses. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. See him, because we'll be like him. We'll be as he is, 1 John 3, 2. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Eternal gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It will never, ever end. Always. This way. What a guarantee of security that is. And not only secure, but secure in the most unimaginable circumstances there are. Designed by God Almighty Himself. Do you really believe this? This sounds so fantastic. And yet Romans 1 tells us that we know God by the things that he has created. And in the physical realm, with our five senses, or six, we see 
some of the incredible things that God has made. Stunningly beautiful things on this earth that appeal so much to the human eye. In the forests, and the woodlands, and the fields, and the rivers, and the streams, and the lakes, and the skies. There's just so much that is awesome if you stop to look at it and think that a being designed all that and then brought it into life, created it out of nothing. And if you can grasp that, and that is fairly easy to grasp because we see it. And we see little examples of beautiful gemstones and gold. We don't see this, but we know that it can be because of what we can see. So when God says this, hopefully we can translate that and realize he's not like the guy on the bar stool telling you, honey, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to get you a new car, and we're going to live happily ever after. Can I buy you another? It's not like that. He ain't lying. This is the truth. This is the God of all the universe making these promises. And he said to me, these things, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show to his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now that gives us a fairly good description. God so thoughtfully provided for us of what it will be like to be a spirit then. But let's return to earth for a moment, because some people are going to live through the Holocaust and the last seven last plagues into the millennium, and there are going to be wonderful conditions for humans there. And then, following that thousand years, when Satan is turned loose for a little season, there's going to be a shaking and a rattling of the bones from Ezekiel 37. And the people that have died from Adam until that time will be brought to physical life, people who have never known God or known the truth. Little children who never knew anything and died while they were young. Unborn babies, I think, will be resurrected as well. Otherwise, why would it be murder to abort children? But we now, in this country alone, have on purpose aborted more babies than have been killed in all the wars of people, soldiers, in all the wars that we have ever fought. And along with the planned abortions have come millions of miscarriages, millions of children with crib death or disease, and now, more recently, children born with cancer, heart defects, diabetes as they hit the floor as a human being. Destined to die before they're five, ten years of age. All those people 
are going to have an opportunity to live and to thrive and ultimately become spirit beings, even as we are now given that opportunity. God is fair, and he's going to give everybody a good chance. And that's why he spoke in parables, so that the multitudes could not and would not understand. Because in their carnal attitudes, they would not have listened, and they would have rejected, and they would have had to have been destroyed. So in mercy, he spoke in parables that only those whose minds he was opening could understand, and the rest did not. And most in religion today still do not. They look upon those parables as nice farmyard stories and nice human interest things. And they even see some spiritual meaning to some of it, but they don't really get it. They don't understand that we were put here to become very God. They don't get that. They don't understand the purpose for mankind. They understand some thing of heaven or ever-burning hell or something like that, but they don't get what this is all about. You do. And when we describe these things, it means something to you. Let's see, while we're back here in Revelation 20, let's go immediately to that. I skipped over it because I wanted to discuss with you what you were to be and what you were to have. And then what they are to have. He says here in 20 that when he first returns, an angel or a fit man from Leviticus 16, probably Christ himself, who is the one who defeated Satan, I think would be the one to do this, binds him a thousand years and casts him into a pit so that he could deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season, very short while. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Emmanuel and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's talking about you and me. Revelation 5.10. We live and reign with Christ a thousand years. That is the future of the church. You don't go to heaven when you die. You stay in the ground, as the Ecclesiastes says, and you know nothing until the resurrection. You're not floating around somewhere in heaven or hell or limbus in phantom or uh, purgatory or any of those places. That's not biblical. That's Catholicism and Protestantism is what that is. The dead know nothing. But we are given thrones and judgment to reign with Christ. But the rest of the dead, apart from the 144,000, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Those who live and reign with Christ, the bride of Christ. The rest of them stay in the ground until the Satan is bound again and the general resurrection occurs. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. We have it made then. We will be spirit and we will be that way forevermore. 
But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and reign with him a thousand years. <coughs> and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem that is here. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, Satan and his demons at that point will be put away permanently, and never again influence anyone in the universe. And then, as soon as that's done, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. So they will be resurrected, having died as abortions, having died as children, having died as old people who never knew and never understood, never had a chance at salvation. And it won't be that they'll all suddenly be lined up and judged. How do you judge a baby that never drew breath? How do you put an eternal judgment on a four-day-old child that was killed? You can't. God gives them a period of time just like he does us. Even as it says in Isaiah 65, he gives the people in the millennium a hundred years. This may very well be a hundred-year period. I cannot say it won't even be a thousand-year period. But the period of need for judgment on a person does appear in Isaiah 65 to be a hundred years. So maybe it is correct that the great white throne judgment will also last a hundred years. No babies being born because this is dealing with everybody that was born but never had a chance. And you, you shut the production off somewhere so you can judge what is. So all these will be judged during that period of time. They'll be judged by the books, by the Bible, by the words of God's Word. And to be judged by this, you will have had to have had time and opportunity to grow up and choose which way to live. And if you go by this, then you will be given eternal life at that judgment. But judgment comes over a period of time. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things, written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and the grave delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So it's a final judgment on all humans who have ever lived. A general judgment. Uh, it does not include the first fruits who will be ruling. It does not include those in the millennium who will have their life and their judgment then. But all those who died without proper knowledge and opportunity to follow God's way will be resurrected and 
possibly a hundred years later, uh, a judgment will be rendered. And they will either be given life eternal, or they will go into a lake of fire and be burned up and forgotten. That will be a merciful death in itself. You know, if you will not accept God's way and His instruction and guidance and direction and won't live the way the rest of the universe is going to live and you would be in opposition and bitterness and hate and frustration and boredom forevermore, death would be a better alternative. So even in the lake of fire there is compassion and mercy from God. Satan knew full well what he was doing when he rebelled against God, and he was already had everlasting life. And I don't see any way that can be taken from him since it was a gift God gave him when he was created, unless he gives it up willingly, and I think he's too selfish to do it, and he will be full of anger and hate and bitterness forevermore, but he will be separated completely from the rest of the population of the universe. But human beings will be destroyed rather than be given eternal life. And that's one of the reasons God made us human. If we will choose to follow his way, he will be so happy to give us eternal life. That's why he created us in the first place. And it even says in Paul's writing, it is his good pleasure to give us life. His good pleasure. He just is going to thoroughly enjoy giving us the gift of life. We need to respond to that. I was going to go into Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 35 and a few other scriptures about the child playing with the lamb and, you know, all those things and playing even with the snakes and so on, showing the peaceful conditions during the millennium. We all know those, and I'm out of time, sadly, and we are. I don't want to belabor this. We've been sitting now for eight days, and that's enough. But really, for those who go into the millennium, there's time yet to learn for those who will be in the great white throne judgment, that's quite a way in the future. But for us, our judgment is now. We are being judged day in and day out. Judgment is now upon the house of Israel, spiritual Israel, the church. So it is more imperative, perhaps, that we focus on our situation more so than those in the millennium even, or the great white throne judgment we know there are opportunities coming, but ours is now. And we need to seize the day. We don't shrink back, as Paul says, but we move forward. We take it. We seize it. We're committed to it. We fight for it. We don't let any man take our crown. One has been designed for us if we've been called. It's in the planning stages. It hasn't been completed because he doesn't know how much fruit we'll produce, how many stones, how many gems will be put in our crown or crowns until judgment is complete. But he's very positive about it. And our name is in the book of life. And it says he will not take it out. The only one that can take it out is us through carelessness, through flippancy, through not valuing it enough, 
witness Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He didn't cherish it. He didn't protect it. He let another man take it. I trust by now we cherish it. We think about it. We pray about it. And we're doing all we can to help each other be there so we can all enjoy the reception of our crowns in the kingdom of God. I hope you will keep these scriptures in mind and review them from time to time because they are so very encouraging. And as we end this festival for a year again, not to be brought forth again until Passover, let's go through these next months very strongly seeking our God. We have very, very trying times ahead of us. The world is getting in very, very sad shape, and much is about to fly apart. And life on this earth is getting more and more dangerous from many different ways every day. Economic collapse, disease, war, natural disasters, natural and man-made disasters. It's getting to be a very dangerous world we live in, which tells us that the time is near and the leaves are appearing on the trees and we know that our redemption is near. So let's seize the day and let's confirm our crown and not let Satan or anybody in this world take it from us because it's designed for us, designed for you, designed for me. I want to wear it. I want you to wear it. And I want you to shine like the sun. God. That's what this is all about. So, God bless you and keep you until we meet again.